One Hope Church. All right. Well, let's uh, let's begin uh, with a word of prayer again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for your greatness and your goodness. Thank you for your Son, who is the center of your love. And thank you for all those that are in him and, and basking in that love today. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit might teach us from your precious word today and open our hearts to believe what you teach us and, uh, Father, to practice what we need to practice in our daily lives. We thank you for this Father's Day. We pray your blessing upon each, uh, each father that uh, is seeking to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I would like again to wish you a happy Father's Day. I realize that uh, for some folks, uh, you know, it's a great day. They have great fathers to uh, appreciate, uh, uh, even though some have perhaps gone home to be with the Lord. And uh, others have had not such good fathers and... Uh, uh, still we have that wonderful truth of a heavenly father who is altogether perfect and loving and wise and good and uh, so even today if you don't even know who your father was or is you have a father in heaven that you can count on to be there all the time and this is the uh, the greatness of the message that God gives us in his precious word. We are starting the book of Ephesians during these summer sessions and various ones will take part in those studies and uh, as we begin with Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 14, we're going to see that the Father's work is, is presented and it is through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. So the Father's work through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit occupies our attention in verses 1 through 14 of Ephesians 1. Now in terms of introduction, I'll take just a little bit of time for that uh, since others probably will not. And uh, So let's remind ourselves of the historical background we studied uh, some in the book of Acts and we saw some things about Ephesus and uh, its importance. It was one of the largest cities in the Mediterranean world. It might not seem like a large city from the scale of things today, but they had a fourth to a half a million people in Ephesus. And on his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul spent two to three years preaching the gospel there and instructing the Christians. Uh, we know, for example, too, that others worked in, in Ephesus with the local churches there. church there. Uh, Apollos, for example, is known to have preached there, that eloquent preacher Apollos from Alexandria. 
Then later, Timothy worked in Ephesus, and then uh, still later, the Apostle John worked there. So we know Ephesus today mainly because of Paul's letter of the Ephesians. And so uh, it has put, put them on the map in a very special way. Now, a question exists regarding the destination of the epistle. Uh, the phrase, at Ephesus, is the reading of most manuscripts. He writes to the Christians, at Ephesus. But there are no insurmountable reasons uh, for that not to be true, because most manuscripts have it. There are a couple that just leave it blank. Uh, the epistle would have been copied at Ephesus and sent to other churches in that part of the world. So uh, other churches in Asia Minor would have received it, and this is probably uh, why uh, the, the, uh, the, the words Ephesus is, is uh, not in a few of those old manuscripts. Now Ephesus was well suited to be read in other churches because uh, since th there's no reference to individuals in Ephesus. Now this is Paul's custom. If he knew the people really well, he knew the church uh, intimately, he would not mention a specific person lest somebody else felt left out and uh, neglected. So it was really suited for a circulating letter uh, that would be read among the churches. Now Paul wrote Ephesus apparently while he was under house arrest in Rome. Now there are three so-called prison epistles, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesus, which apparently were all composed about the same time and uh, they were delivered by Tychicus on the same journey. You can see this in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4. So it was probably near the time that Paul expected to be released from his Roman imprisonment there at the end of Acts. Uh, Philemon 22, verse 22 would, uh, would uh, indicate that. So we know that uh, apparently Paul was released and he had a number of years left to journey about and serve in different places and continue planting the churches. So a date for Ephesians would be say 60 to 61 uh, AD. That would be approximate for that. Now if we go to looking at the uh, book of Ephesus, Ephesians, excuse me, uh, in relation to the rest of the New Testament, we find that Ephesians has a very close relationship to Colossians. Uh, it's really closely related to it. Colossians stress this truth Christ is the head of the universe. Ephesians express this truth. Christ is the head of the church. So they're intimately related. And that church is Christ's spiritual body, the body upon this earth, as it were. It's a, it's a spiritual entity as well as being uh, composed of uh, physical persons. So 
Ephesians treats the great theme of the church in its universal aspect. You know, there's a local church and a universal church. And so the universal church would be composed of all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, all those who have been born again in God's family. This is uh, in contrast to the local church, which is emphasized in 1 Corinthians. You read 1 Corinthians, you can uh, see the local aspects of the church. Now, the perspective of Ephesians really is, is very large. It goes from eternity past to eternity future. It reveals the character of the church composed of believing Jews and Gentiles who are associated together on an equal basis in one body, the church. And so that's completely new. It was a mystery. It wasn't in the Old Testament, the, the first covenant. It's explained in the New Testament. And Paul was uh, given that task uh, in a special way to explain uh, in his writings. Now, Ephesians also shows us the source and purpose of spiritual gifts in the church, to build up the church. And that's, uh, that's part of it. This universal church has gifts that are given to it. Finally, Ephesians tells of the spiritual warfare that the Christian is in. We are not, as it were, at peace. We are at war with evil and uh, forces of evil which are spiritual and real, and we must have on our full armor. Now, when you look at Ephesians, it falls naturally into two sections. The first three chapters are doctrinal. The second three chapters are practical. The first three chapters tells us about our spiritual privileges as, a, as the church. The final three chapters tells about our spiritual responsibilities as the church. Now, we could divide uh, the two sections with a title. First, uh, first three chapters would be position in Christ, our wealth. And that's certainly true in Ephesians. The second three chapters would be our practice in Christ, our walk. And so our wealth and our walk, our position, our practice, are pointed out in these two sections. So we begin with position in Christ, our wealth, first three chapters. Greetings, Paul says. Now, Paul follows the literary form of the time, and he adds Christian elements to that in a very special way. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now notice Paul uses his Roman name because he's uh, writing to people in Gentile areas. He doesn't use Saul, he uses Paul. Apostle is used in the highest sense here because uh, it's limited to Paul and the twelve. There are other apostles, apostles sent forth by the church, but uh, they're not at the quite the same level in terms of being apostolic in that 
a sense of giftedness and position and office. Now, to the saints that are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, saints, of course, is not what the world means by saints. <laughs> you, you go to your TV and you're, you, know, you, you see reports about saints and this and that. Saints merely means set-apart ones and is true of all believers in Christ. They're set apart by the gospel to God through Jesus Christ. So you're a saint if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and been born into his family. Second uh, verse, Christ, uh, it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace is God's unmerited favor in salvation and in the Christian life. Peace includes being right with God and having God's calm in your life during really tough times. And we, we all are thankful for both of those realities. Now notice this, the source of God's grace and peace is from both the Father and the Son. And what does this imply? It implies an equality of the Father and the Son. They are the source. Then we come to verses 3 through 14, which deals with the Christian salvation. We've talked about the salutation, the introduction. Now we're talking about the Christian salvation, verses 3 through 14. The work of the Father himself in verse 3 through 6. Very uh, appropriate for Father's Day to have this about our Heavenly Father and all of his great goodness to us. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now what about every spiritual blessing? Wow, that is, an, uh, that is a statement, isn't it? The poorest person in Christ is rich beyond measure. That's what that's saying. Who would trade places with anyone outside of Christ, no matter how rich they might be? Who would trade places with, with, with that? I sure wouldn't. You could talk about all the people in the news that uh, are rich and famous, and some have billions of dollars. But the Christian who is uh, a poor person has more than they will ever have. Believing this is true eliminates a very important thing. It eliminates chasing after every spiritual fad that comes along. Because we have already every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now in the heavenlies uh, is literally what that is. And though we have much now, the fullness of the blessing will be realized in a coming day. Now verse 4, he has chosen us. First, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, to get the proper perspective, we need to see the fuller picture of this in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and following. I'd just like to, uh, to read that because this gives us a bigger picture. 
It says in verse 28 of Romans 8, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the all things here, obviously, from the context, is not everything that happens. It's the all things of God's redemptive acts toward us in Christ. And it goes on to explain that. It says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So these all things of uh, God's redemptive purposes uh, are built in a chain here. He, He says that predestination is based upon God's foreknowledge. His foreknowledge of what? His foreknowledge of a person's response to the gospel. In similar passages, you might have various links in this chain of events, these redemptive acts, that may be omitted. But we have to keep in mind the fuller picture. And this results in us being justified and even puts glorified in the past tense because uh, it's so sure for every true believer. And so let's not forget the big picture, the bigger picture that Romans gives us. All the chains in the in the links, uh, all the links in the chain of God's redemptive events and acts. It says also that we should be holy and we without blame before Him in love. The purpose of the our heavenly Father is for each of His children to be holy. And to be without blame. This should be it. Should be our daily uh, effort to be conformed to that which God has proposed to put us in, and in which we are, in fact, spiritually and positionally in Christ, holy and without blame. Now, the words "in love" might be associated with that, or with the next verse, "in love," having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. We've been adopted by God. That literally means son placing. We are placed as sons in his family. The moment we believe we are born from above, as John chapter 3 tells us, and placed as adult sons in God's family, as this verse tells us, and there are responsibilities and privileges that go along with this adult sonship that all the believers have, whether they're men or women. We are sons in the Father's uh, eyes. And we have these responsibilities and these privileges. Now, it's according to the good pleasure of His will. God's good intentions, His kind intentions toward us are manifest in this. And he has accepted us. Notice it is 
to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's kind of a refrain in this uh, set of verses. By which he made us accepted in the beloved. In Christ, God's free grace is manifest. So that if we are in Christ, we have all the grace, we have all the forgiveness, we have all the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And this is a really powerful key to living at personal peace with God because we are, in fact, accepted in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. When we have a fault, God sees it, but ultimately... Ultimately, in terms of eternal uh, forgiveness and eternal destiny, he sees Christ, and those faults are paid for in Christ. He has redeemed us. In him we have redemption through his, his blood. So we, we come to this section, 7 through 12, where the work of the Father is seen through the Son. Now, just a thought... You know, Mark is a gospel of the servant who does the will of the Father by going about doing good and healing all that are oppressed of the devil. Acts tells us that. Jesus said in Mark 10, this gospel of the servant, that the person of his purpose of his coming was to give his life a ransom for many. The ransom was his life and the, the life that he gave was the price of release for those who are in bondage to Satan, sin, and death. And he fulfilled this major purpose that we even see in this Gospel of Mark by his violent, sacrificial death on Calvary's cross. Now, that brings... The forgiveness, redemption comes first. Forgiveness that we experience, it comes after. The Apostle John also wanted to encourage the believers with the liberating truth that God had really forgiven them. He says in 1 John 2 and 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Wow, what a blessing. And notice the standard of forgiveness is exceedingly great. It's according to the riches of His grace. Now, God has also revealed to us about His will to us, toward us. This grace he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Now, what's the difference between wisdom and prudence? Wisdom refers to uh, a kind of spiritual understanding. uh, Understanding spiritual matters. Prudence relates to the mind and the practical wisdom in the management of life's affairs. So... Uh, we, we have both of those things given to us and they abound toward us in Christ. 
verse 9 says, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Uh, There is goodness in what he wills, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So God's kind intentions toward us are made known to us. And especially in the message of the gospel. Verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Now, gather together means to head up, to sum up, to bring to the main point both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. Now, perhaps we should mention here about what this word dispensation means. It signifies the management of a household and of household affairs. It's used that way, for example, in the Gospels. The word is used to describe the different ways in which God managed his household world. I'll say that again. It describes the different ways in which God managed his household world. That's the thought of dispensations. Now, there are dispensations before the Mosaic Law. There is the dispensation of the law itself. And then there is the dispensation of the church. Now, there is this future dispensation, which he's talking about here, in which the administration or arrangement by which God in the fullness of times will sum up all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ. So it's looking ahead to the great universal dominion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in in verses 11 and 12, we have a kind of emphasis on the Jewish believers. Uh, why God and, uh, chose Jewish believers to be a part of his church. He, he says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. The all things in this context has to do with the matters of salvation, especially uh, why the Jews are included in this universal church, along with, of course, the Gentiles. But the, the Jews are emphasized here that we who first trusted in Christ, who first hoped in Messiah, should be to the praise of his glory. The Jews were the first believers, and uh, many of them had hoped in Messiah, and they saw Messiah in Jesus, and they believed and were made a part of that. And you see in uh, Acts, uh, the, the day of Pentecost, and so many Jewish believers coming into that reality. To the Jews first, Paul writes in Romans, and also to the Greeks or the Gentiles. And so... Uh, time-wise, the Jews first came first, and he's mentioning that. The work of the Father through the Spirit comes next in verses 13 through 14. In him, 
you also trusted or hoped after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now this word of truth, this gospel is so important. Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read that. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you will stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So the gospel is essentially the idea that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures of the Old Testament, which prophesied of that, and he was buried. It was final. It was historical. And he rose again the third day according to those Old Testament scriptures and, of course, the Gospels that we have. In whom also, having believed, the follower of Jesus, uh, Paul says, begins the journey by believing in Jesus. There's no other way to begin it. You cannot bypass that step. And then, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Literally, it should be translated, when you believed, you were sealed. For those that might be interested in the technicality here, believed is a Greek aorist participle. And it shows simultaneous action with the main verb sealed. So these happen together at the very same instant. You believe, you're sealed. The Holy Spirit, in this case, is the seal himself. Now we might ask, what is, where does this idea of sealed come from. It comes from the ancient world's common use of the legal stamp for a document or object. And he says it's, it's, it's a kind of a thing that, that's used and there's a lot of practical truth in this. The, the believers are sealed. They're, they're all sealed. It's used in the plural here. They're sealed the moment they believe. They're sealed for security. They're not to be open, and we are secure in Christ. The seal was used for identification and ownership. And this, in this case, God owns us. The seal was for authentication, to confirm as genuine and true. And we know that the seal confirms that in the individual's life. Without the Spirit, there is no salvation, no matter what uh, a person might profess. This is also uh, a word that's found in 2 Corinthians 1.22 and our Ephesians 4 and 30. Now, God has given us a guarantee when he seals us with the Spirit. It says, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? The pledge is the Holy Spirit until the redemption of the purchased possession. Jesus Christ is coming back, and this is guaranteed. He's going to claim his purchased possession. And everyone that has the Spirit, that has been born in God's, into God's family, will be taken to be with Jesus forever. And it, again, will be to the praise of his glory. 
So the good news is the gospel, and it's surely good news. A person hears the gospel, trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, receives the Lord Jesus Christ, and is sealed forever, all to the praise of his glory. Now, perhaps uh, we could just take a moment to to clarify uh, how one, on this Father's Day, comes into the Heavenly Father's eternal family. And it's very plain in His Word uh, how this is done. And, and I think it might be useful to, uh, to some who are wondering about this. First of all, acknowledge your sin and lost condition. If it, you know, the old adage, if you're lost in the woods, you can't, can't find your way until you realize you're lost. Uh, you have to lo- acknowledge that you're lost in your sins. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3 and 23. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you believe that? And uh, that's the condition of everyone who has not trusted Christ. Realize you cannot save yourself from the penalty of sin, which is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a certain pay that comes with sinning, and it's called death. And it involves not only physical death, but eternal separation, eternal death, where the spirit is not only separated from the the body for now, in our case of physical death, but in the eternal sense, uh, the spirit and the resurrected body of the unsaved is separated from God forever. Notice that in the third thing that you have to know is that Christ died to pay the penalty of your sin. Uh, this was mentioned earlier, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. What love is that? Then 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, uh, again, this is that uh, passage we've already referred to. The gospel it says, unless you have believed in vain, these things are, are salvation for you. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the, in the context of 1 Corinthians, he's arguing for the truth of the resurrection. And he says, if the resurrection is not true, then everything is empty. But the resurrection is true. Therefore, everything is glory. And... Uh, so, unless you have believed in vain is, is the first step in that argument. If it's in vain, it's not true, but it is true. That if Christ died for our sins and he rose again from the dead. Verse 14 says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, because Christ was the first to die and to rise again with a glorified body, so all who believe in him will follow suit and we will come as 
the next fruit uh, for His glory. And so Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now it takes faith to believe that. That this man, Jesus, died on a cross, was put in a tomb, and on the third day rose from the dead. If you believe that in your heart, you are saved. You are a born-again Christian. So repent. Say you're sorry for your sins. You cannot say to yourself, know that Christ paid for the penalty of your sins and believe God's word concerning him. So, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 1 and 7 said, which you read earlier, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Now, some folks would like to, to pray and to uh, make this a reality in their own lives on this Father's Day. And so I'd like just to express a, a word of prayer that a person who knows that they are a sinner can pray and know at the end of their prayer, if they sincerely in their heart prayed this prayer, that they are forgiven. And here is the prayer. Pray along with me if you, if you are in this condition. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. Nothing I do will get me to heaven. But I believe Jesus Christ died for me and rose from the dead. Right now, I place my trust in Christ alone as my only way to heaven. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the eternal life I now have in Jesus' name. Amen. If you sincerely prayed that, this prayer and trusted Christ in your heart, then you are a child of the Father. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus gives the believer a promise of the utmost importance. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Note, Jesus, the Son of God, gives the assurance here. He who hears my word, have you heeded the word of Jesus? And believes in him who sent me. And believes him who sent me. This has to do with the believing the Father's word about Jesus. And believes him who sent me has everlasting life. When does it start? When you believe you have everlasting life. What about judgment? This verse tells us there's no judgment regarding sin and eternal destiny. It says in this verse, the believer has passed from death into life. The line has been crossed death into life. You are in if you have trusted Jesus as your personal Savior. Once you know that you are a child of the Heavenly Father, 
Don't live any longer as a child of the devil. Live as a child of God. Live to please your heavenly Father in all things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for everyone that has either either now or in the past repented of their sins and turned to Jesus Christ and believed on him as their personal Savior. Thank you, Father, that you become our Heavenly Father in a very special, special way when we become your child through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for him whom you sent while we were still sinners. And today as we think about these things, as we break the bread, as we drink the cup, we think that of the reality that Christ was willing to be nailed to that cross to suffer in our place, to pay for our sins, and to shed his precious, precious blood that we might be forgiven. Thank you, Father, for what he did for us on the cross and uh, the reality of his resurrection from the dead on the third day. Thank you, Father, that he has promised to come back and to take his uh, redeemed possessions to himself forever. And we give you thanks, Father, for these things. In that ever-worthy name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.